From an outside perspective, restaurants are the perfect getaway. Great food, inviting atmosphere, comforting environment. It's an all-around fantastic time for friends and family alike. Though it can be beautiful and enriching from the inside perspective, as a guest, one doesn't see the hardships and stressors of creating a wonderful experience. Every restaurateur goes through struggles and challenges that could make or break them. This podcast aims to explore that, pulling back the curtain and understanding what it's truly like to run these establishments as told by those who do it. I'm Justin Warner, and you're listening to Resto Talk, a podcast brought to you by Touch Bistro. Who are you and what do you do? My name is Chef Vikram Vij. I am an Indian chef, but I live in Canada. I come from the largest democracy in the world called India, but I live in the best democracy in the world called Canada. And I own restaurants in Vancouver, and I believe that every human being is equal and should be respected with the same amount of love and care. Wow. You don't really hear a whole lot of chefs leaning with that, their, their, their take on democracy and their take on how people should be treated. So it seems as though you're not just a chef and restaurant owner. So how did you get where you are and how did you come to this sort of, you know, holistic view of your life? Well, you know, Gandhi said we are all equal. So having been born brought up in India, obviously those principles meant a lot to me. And I went to Austria to study as an Indian chef studying in Austria, which is predominantly a German and a French and Swiss white male dominated society. And having been not allowed to make main courses or cook foods that was, you know, that anybody else was allowed to do. I, I, I was just a Gardemanger and I was allowed to fry schnitzel. And that was the extent of it. I wasn't allowed to cook a steak or make some sauces. And so when I was going through that journey of mine, I felt that I needed to change the way A, Indian food is perceived, and B, how human beings should be treated. And uh, so when we opened up our restaurant, I wanted to treat everybody equally. So a nurse that you know saves lives or a teacher that teaches my kids to be a great human being needed to be given the same respect as that of uh, an actor or an actress, you know, who thinks that they are above anybody. Nobody's above anyone. We are all equal. The color of my blood is exactly the same as the color of your blood, you know. So it came from a very early stage of, you know, ha having studied in, in Austria and then, you know, faced racism because of the color of my skin, even though I was totally capable of making those meals, but not being allowed to do that. And so everything that happened to me in Austria and, and working in different parts of Europe, I wanted to change when I came here. I wanted to be given the same respect for my cuisine and my culture as any French chef does or an Italian chef does. And also wanted to make sure that we treat the people that work in our kitchens with the same respect and love as I wanted to be treated at that time. And uh, yeah, we all worked hard, but we also, you know, respected at the end of the day, we all got together and went out for drinks and had fun. And there was no uh, hierarchy in, my, in our kitchens. So everything that, that bothered me about until that point, we implemented that in our restaurants. And that is, has been the goal ever since. And the journey has lasted 28 years. And it's been a beautiful ride of uh, ups and downs of restaurants, you know, losing your marriage because of that, 
lots of things that have happened, but how do you get to where I am? I, I think I am where I am now because of the principles of that equality and humanity is the fundamental aspect of life. And sometimes you lose, sometimes you win, but it's okay. Wow. That's such a, a great explanation and great response. And I love that you're bringing, when you lead with equality, things like the, brig, the French style brigade system and a pecking order, they're kind of thrown out the window. It's difficult. And I've always kind of found that, you know, when you have this sort of pecking order system in a kitchen, nobody is actually learning. Everyone is just accomplishing what they've been asked to do. And it leads to bullying and it leads to sometimes too much ambition. It leads to envy. And there are just so many things that go wrong. And kind of as a matter of fact, in, in my restaurant, everybody gets cross-trained. I worked for Danny Meyer. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Um, Floyd, so Carlos, I with- Floyd, Floyd Carlos was a really, really good friend of mine. And when he had tabla, I had done a cooking show with him. We lost him two years ago COVID. to COVID. Yeah. Him and I went long, long, long back to Bombay and our schools of it. And so what he did in, with Tabla in New York is what I wanted to do with Indian food. We were very both passionate about our heritage and our backgrounds where we came from. I loved Floyd. So when I knew Floyd, I wasn't anybody. I wasn't a podcast host. I wasn't on any TV shows. I was just a really good waiter. And then I opened a decent restaurant in Brooklyn. And I did an event and Floyd was there. And I said, hey, chef, you know, I've always admired your, your work. And, you know, I used to be part of the same hospitality group under Danny Meyer. And he treated me as though he had known me for years and as though I was someone of great importance, when in fact I was just, you know, just a dorky fanboy. And that has stayed with me. And as a matter of fact, when Tabla closed, there was an auction and I talked to Danny and I said, hey, I'm opening a restaurant. And to this day, I still have one of the copper bowls from Tabla. And it, to me, it's just a priceless artifact because it's not only from a great restaurant. Ultimately, it was from a great person who I think it was such a tragic loss. Yeah. And so why don't we dedicate this whole episode to Floyd Cardos and his memory and his way of doing things and bringing awareness to the cuisine and, and the culture of not just Bombay, but of India itself. And so I'd like to actually mo- take a moment to dedicate this, this to him and may his wife and his kids rest and, and that he rests in peace and that they're beautiful and they're healthy and everybody, everybody's okay. More than, more than the fact that you work for Danny Myers, I mean, I've obviously admired him and I've met him a couple of times I did, when I did the James Beard dinner and a few times we've met and I've always admired his style and restaurant 18 was, is one of my favorite restaurants still, you know, 72, I mean, not 18. So talk to me, why, why Canada? What led you to go from, you know, Austria, Europe to Canada specifically? So, you know, as I said, I was in the kitchen working and one day an older gentleman who had gone skiing all day. He was from Hungary, and but he lived in Canada. And he was having dinner at the restaurant where I was working at. I was working at a very high-end hotel post. It's the Raleigh and Chateau property, very high-end property. And you have to remember, at that time, as an Indian passport holder, I wasn't allowed to work for more than six months 
at any resort because you know you, they wanted you to leave the country, you know, to wow. go somewhere else, kind of a thing. It's like not in my backyard. They would give you working visa for six months and then you would have to leave. People like Mexican workers that are coming to harvest the the fields, basically. Right. So I was working in the kitchen and the maitre d' comes to me and says, "There's this gentleman here and he wants to have something spicy." He doesn't, he doesn't, you know, he's come back from skiing. He's a little cold and he wants something spicy. So I had some goulash soup there. And what I did was I had some Indian spices, uh, which my mom had given me in my suitcase. And I took some Indian spices, sauteed some onions, ginger, garlic, took the goulash soup, put it in there and served him a, a garam masala sauteed, you know, goulash soup. And so uh, half an hour, 45 minutes after the soup was out uh, and it was delivered, Obviously, the kitchen was making fun of me because now the Indian food was wafting through the kitchen. And you have to understand, these are kitchens that are so clean and so immaculate that a little bit of uh, garam masala spice can waft through the whole kitchen. And people were like, what's that smell? Man, that smells strong. And anyway, so a few minutes later, I got a call from the maitre saying that gentleman that you made the soup for wants to see you. So I thought I was going to get fired because maybe I put too much spice in that food or something like this. But he looked at me and he said, where was I from? And I said, I'm from India and I speak German fluently. And he said, you know, guys like you belong to a country called Canada. You should come to Canada because it's a young country. It's a democratic country and you should come there. I didn't think much of it. I'd been studying in Austria and France and everything was like so petite and small and, you know, delicate. And we talked about like, you know, you had a bottle of Riesling while you were having oysters, and then you had a bottle of Pinot Noir when you were having your mushroom soups, and then you had a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon when you were having your steak. Like, you know, the culture of food and wine was very prevalent there. But I don't know, somewhere in my heart of hearts, I felt something quite strong. So what I did was I took my resume and I sent it to him, said, hey, I've studied as a chef here, you know, and this is where I worked, and these are all my resumes, and I'd gotten good recommendation letters. And six weeks later, I got an envelope. He sent me a six-month working visa to Canada and a one-way ticket to come to Canada. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to Canada now. Because, you know, it was generous for him to send me a ticket and give me a working visa. So when I came here, I just fell in love. He was the general manager of the Banff Springs Hotel, which is in Alberta, which is one of the most beautiful, majestic hotels in the world. It's one of the leading hotels of the world. It's just absolutely beautiful. It's big. It's great. And so when I came here, I, was, I realized that this was my country. This is where I belonged because I knew that I didn't need to change myself. I didn't need to assimilate here. I could be who I am. You know, I have toe rings and piercings and, and nose rings and I could be who I am and I could, I could, I could survive. And, and this was a country that was going to give me the platform to be successful. And hence, I came to Canada and I worked with him for three and a half, four years. And then suddenly he died of a heart attack because he was a heavy smoker and a drinker. And I packed my bags from Bam Springs Hotel and came to Vancouver and started uh, working at some high-end restaurants. Uh, but by this time, I had decided that Vancouver was my calling and Canada was my country that I would love to represent if I go anywhere else. I'm the most unappointed ambassador of Canada. I understand. <laughs> wow, that's an incredible story. I mean, because you've gotten you're like you're famous, right? And you've gotten 
very like big. You've done so much stuff. You've gotten so many awards. You've when you're like, yeah, I just casually did a James Beard dinner. You know, like you've accomplished an awful lot. Do you ever think about where you would be if you didn't take the risk of making that soup? I think I would be working somewhere in Vienna in a kitchen as a as a line cook or a head cook or something like that in a small restaurant because they would have never allowed me to buy a property there because I was not from Austria. So you could be born and brought up there. I mean, things have changed now, but probably I would have been in Europe somewhere just working away as a chef somewhere or as a cook or the front of the house or something like this and just plugging along. I, I don't think I would have gotten the same accolade and the recognition that Canada has bestowed upon me. And I thank every human being for this, for supporting me. And when I came here, the color of my skin didn't matter. My orientation didn't matter. It didn't matter who I was. All that mattered was, was I putting my best foot forward? Was I putting my love on the plate? What a magical story, man. I, I love hearing that. I nerd out on things. I'm very analytical. I, I can't stop asking why. But I, I think to myself, and I, I was picturing this as you said it, you know, and I know those kitchens. I know what that was like. I know that the smell of garam masala wafting through this otherwise sterile kitchen where smells are forbidden, you know, and what a magical moment. You know, I, I wonder how much garam masala you put in, but like your life changed probably with what, one and a half teaspoons? Yeah, it was the fact that I sauteed onions, ginger and garlic. I made a masala out of it and I put some garam masala and I had some little cumin and I added a little bit of paprika and chili because obviously goulash soup already has certain of those elements, you yes. know, and that potatoes in there and I sauteed them. And, you know, it was just, it was just a moment of the fact that the goulash soup went to the right person. Had it been another person who was working, I mean, where I used to stay, the, the Dutch Hoheit, we call them Hoheit, used to stay there as well. And, you know, Bernhard, Prince Bernhard at that time, uh, and Beatrix used to have dinner there as well. And he loved, he used to say, you know, make something spicy, make something unique, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I would make it, but that never went anywhere. The fact is that it went to this gentleman, Ivor Petrak was his name, and how he enjoyed that food and how he gave me his card and said, people like, he must have recognized something and said, people like you should come to Canada and, and work. That to me is where moments are. And this is what I do now. I, I always have my cards with me. And every time I see someone, you know, behind a, a counter or something who's doing a good job, you know, I give them my card and say, call me if I can, if I can be of help, if I can get you in the kitchen, if I can change your life, because that one little card or that goulash soup changed my life, if I can change that person's life. So if they're behind a counter or, you know, they're just stinging hamburgers, I always give out my cards and say, if I can change your life, that is what we're supposed to. Because if you look at it philosophically, the person who built the Taj Mahal, because he had so much money, nobody remembers. But we all remember Gandhi. We remember Martin Luther King Jr. We remember Nelson Mandela because they changed people's lives. They changed the course of nations, whether it was civil rights, whether it was independence from or whether it was getting rid of apartheid. If you look at that emotionally, so that's what I want to do is to change people's lives by giving them the opportunity as my life was changed, as somebody held my hand. 
And that to me is fundamental. And that's why I'm such a big fan of Jose Andreas, for example, what he has done and what he's been doing in the last six months to a year. We've just come out of a pandemic, so I'm not emotionally ready to just go out there what he's done, but I have highest respect for him. Wow. Okay, man, we're really cracking open some big nuts here. And that makes me very happy. So let's now talk about food and talk about, you know, being in Vancouver. And I have found, because I moved from New York to South Dakota, I went from a very, very big market to a very, very small market. And I felt as though I was a little hesitant. I I was cautious to really kind of put my heart on a plate or in a bowl in the case of ramen. It can be scary to expose yourself like that, you know, because you run the risk of rejection or you run the risk of criticism or maybe people just don't even know what to make it. Maybe people are neutral, which is the reaction that I hate the most, which is like, meh. What was it like for you to open your first restaurant? So one of the things that I had promised myself was I was not going to do butter chicken. I was not going to do chicken tikka masala. I was not going to do what the other restaurants had been doing because Indian food is so vast, so beautiful, so unique, and so different. You know, it's like, I, I was so tired of being stereotyped and said, so when people would come in and say, where's the butter chicken? And I would say, I don't serve butter chicken, but taste this chicken curry. And if you don't like it, you don't have to pay for it. I promise you this. And 99% of the time, people paid for that curry because they realized that there was love and passion behind it. It took one individual and one customer at a time to hold their hands and say, trust me. And that meant I needed to be on the floor. So I had just gotten married to a beautiful woman called Miru, who is from Washington, D.C. And she took over the kitchen. She had no previous restaurant experience, but she took over the kitchen and she became really good friends with the women in the kitchen. And even till today, she still manages the kitchen completely and runs the kitchen. So the woman who was the dishwasher at the time is our head cook right now. So there's no hierarchy. She's worked her way up and she's managed it. And Miru really took utmost care and the food and the style of cooking that she was doing. And that allowed me to come to the front of the house. So what happened was I was not stuck in the back there and it was not like the servers were serving. I was on the floor every day, opening the restaurant, closing the restaurant and making sure that people that came into the restaurant saw that Vikram Vij was present. And the reason why the restaurant is called Vijis is because it's my last name. And when you put your last name on a restaurant or any product, you better make sure it's good because if people don't like it, <laughs> you know, you can have a bad attention. Whether you look at Henry Ford, for example, you know, the, the, the cars that he built or anybody else, you know, when you put your last name on, on a product, it, it, it has to mean a lot. So the, the best part was that I was able to come to the front, hold people's hands, and I learned the, the skill of welcoming everybody and treating everyone with love and respect. And people saw that. People saw that. So they were okay to try this because they knew that the owner was there and he was telling them what to eat and what not to eat. And so that took the journey and everything else came along. And so it was very tough initially because people had stereotypical. You know, it's like they they, they thought that's what it is. You know, it's like everybody thinks that hamburger is American cuisine. It's not. There's so much more to it. But then it took some food writers and there were some really high-end food writers, New York Times food writer, whom I've 
was good friends, became good friends with afterwards. Tony Baudin came in and we did the dinners and stuff like that. So, you know, and, and then one thing led to the other and the James Weird and the event with Floyd's and everything else. But the thing is, I took part, I participated with them. I, I, I always said, if I expect you to celebrate me, then I should celebrate with you. So any functions that were happening, any events that were happening, I always said, I want to be there as well. I didn't want to be like, oh, well, what are you going to pay me or what's going to happen or anything like that. So that bridging of the gap was very important. So it didn't matter. People didn't say, oh, he's Indian cuisine. People just said, oh, he's Vikram Vich. And, you know, he's presenting his, his background. He's putting himself on the plate, basically. It's tough. I mean, no question about it. But it was just pure love. Wow. I, man, it's crazy. I, I do the same thing. I hate being on the line. I love developing a recipe. I love teaching people the, the fundamentals of the recipe. But ultimately, my place is, is with the people. And that I have found that you get so much more success by being not a hands-on chef, but a hands-on human. And to me, the, the goal of the chef, the job of the chef is to be the conductor of the orchestra. I'm not the best knife skills. I'm not the best any of the cooks but what i can do is i can organize people i can lead people and that those people includes the customers and being able to be on the floor with them and they're surprised well what are you doing here like it's it's kind of wild and i have found that the more you can be close to the customer the closer you can be the customer the more likely they are to take a risk to try something new and i say it's so funny you said if you don't like it you know, you're not paying for it. I say that all the time. I just opened a wine bar last night and I said, I, someone was curious about a wine. And I said, look, if you don't like it, I'll drink it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, sure enough, people take the leap. And I think that it's interesting to meet a chef that has the confidence in their people skills to step out from the behind the line. Because I look at the, the line and I look at the kitchen and the, the fact that there is Sometimes it's only an imaginary divider between front of house and back of house, but people hide. They hide back there. And it seems like you've never done that. No, I didn't, didn't, I didn't need to hide because I was confident. When I tasted that food and I liked it, I knew that this was good food. I wasn't hiding behind it. So I didn't need to hide behind. I didn't need to hide behind butter. I didn't need to hide behind cream. I didn't need to hide behind flavors. I didn't need to hide behind chilies. I knew that the dish was created like this. So one of the things that we did was, you know, most Indian restaurants, you go down and they ask you, do you want it mild, medium, or hot? And I was like, no, I'm a chef. I know what the dish tastes like. So if it's goat meat, it's going to be spicy. If it's cauliflower, it's not going to be that spicy because that's the dish. So I've cooked the way it is. You're going to eat it the way it is. You want to enhance it. You want to add some spice to it. I'll bring you a little chili on the side. I'll bring you a little chutney on the side. You want to tone it down? I'll bring you a little yogurt on the side. But I'm not asking you mild, medium, or hot. Like, you don't go to a French chef and say, can you, uh, can you make my French fries well done, please? You don't. You just say, that's the way the chef has cooked it. That's the way it's supposed to be done. And so if you're not going to go to a French restaurant and ask for that, then why are you coming to an Indian restaurant and ask for that? So it was about equality. It was about respect. Uh, respect of the ingredients, respect of the culture, respect of the history where it came from. Today, I think we've come a long way. I'm talking about 28 years ago, you know, when it was difficult. Today, people are respecting it. When you go to David Chang's restaurant, Mama Fuko, you eat what he's made. 
But 24 years ago, 28 years ago, people would be like, oh, can I have some extra chili sauce or extra this on, on the side? The respect of the chef has gone up because we have stood up and said, whoa, 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 give us the respect. Don't treat us as if we are just cooks for you. We are putting heart and soul behind each and every dish. So then that way, people respected us. This is what I say. If, if the Canadians don't respect their own backyard, where their food comes from, the fishermen, the purveyors, the winemakers, the farmer, nobody else will. We have to be proud of ourselves. If we are proud of ourselves, everybody else is proud of you. you we need to be proud of ourselves. Wow, I love that. I just have a kind of a curious oddball question because it seems as though, you know, you decided to work in restaurants and hospitality and, and some of the, you know, areas that surround it. And you support the idea of like sustainable foods and the respect for the people that produce it here in America, 2% of America is in agriculture. That means 98% of people are eating what the other 2% are producing. It's crazy. And so you have all of this. I'm wondering if you were in any other field, what would it be? If, if chefing, if, if food management, et cetera, was not an option, what would it be? I would like to be an actor. I would like to be a stage actor. I would love to be able to tell stories through my eyes, my actions, my body, my, my face. I would love to be that actor because I think my calling is to talk about equality, to talk about welcomeness and togetherness. I would never be a politician and I would, I was, I'm not smart enough to become a doctor or a lawyer. So it would, it would be stage acting and, and I, that's what it would be. And, and I think I would have the same message, whether I was acting is I would be that person who would be standing there and making people laugh and showcasing what, what a writer has written or what a director has directed or a musician that has, you know, done beautiful music. I love it. I always refer to the, the front of house as the dance floor. And I actually play a lot of disco music when we're <laughs> serving. And uh, people are like, why, why disco? It makes this place feel like funky and fun. And I'm like, it's not for you guys. Like, it's for us. Like, because yeah. I want us to be dancing. I want us to be moving. I want us to have rhythm. I want us to be able to convey the message. And believe it or not, like so much disco music is extremely positive, you know, like, it's, it's all about loving and having a good time and, and doing it right. Yeah, and one of the things that I did at the restaurant was most restaurants you go to and they have this, you know, background elevator, sitar music or little tabla and thing like that. Nothing, nothing wrong with it. That's beautiful music. But it's not dining music. It's not the music there. So I listen to some loud Bollywood music. I listen to so many great Indo-Canadian, Indo-American musicians who are off of that, you know, genre that are playing, putting great music together. You know, there is a woman called Vidya Vox, for example. She's from the States. I think she, she's not from Dakota, but I don't know where exactly she's from. But she's somewhere in the South, and she uses the South Indian style of, cooking, of, of music with where she lives, and she's born and brought up in the States and everything else. There are so many great musicians. You know, Harsh Kale, for example. You have Raghav. They're such great musicians. They have done such beautiful job of having this platform. So it's not, it's not exactly disco, but it's funky. And that's what I love to play. It's funky Indian music. And people say, whoa, whoa, what is this? Like, we're not used to this loud kind of a music. And I'm like, that's what you're going to listen to because I'm loud. Yeah, I love it. You know, we kind of have another thing in common. 
you've done TV a lot. Yes. Well, I did. Uh, I did Chopped. I did uh, Top Chef. I did, uh, and I'm a Dragon and Dragons then, which is the Shark Tank for you guys. Yeah, I've done a lot of television, and I and I love doing it. And I said that's my medium of expressing myself. And and as you said, you know, I believe that at five thirty, when the curtain is drawn, when the restaurant is open, you know, the stage is on, and you're there. You're performing. You're creating an orchestra. You're creating your music. And then at ten o'clock, the curtains are drawn when you when the restaurant is shut down, and then you go to the back and you chill a little bit. Yeah, I I know the feeling. What do you find in the restaurant business that has helped you in TV? Because TV can be taxing, and I think there are a lot of similarities to set life and lunch life, aside from the theatrical part. You know, my patience I find is always getting tested, and like today, I was literally sautéing the the snap peas and. I do it in a strange way. It's a long story. I won't bore you with it, but they were taking a little longer than I would have liked to get some color because I had just shocked them and they were cold. I was rushing the process, you know, and I was just so antsy. And like when you're on set, they put you in a trailer and then you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. And I find that those two things and my antsiness is constantly being tested by my two jobs, whether it is not being able to put the food out fast enough or get the color on the snap peas. Or it's having to stay in a trailer and waiting for my time to be called to set. And there, I find that there are a lot of similarities. Long hours, standing on your feet for too long, having to be patient, doing things you don't necessarily want to do. Do you find that the two bleed well together for you? It is basically the same thing. Whether you're waiting in a trailer or you're standing in a kitchen and peeling your potatoes, it's the same thing. I mean, the, the end effect is... When that person takes that bite of the food and you look at their faces and they say, wow, this is delicious. That is what you thrive to do all day long. It's the same thing. When you stand there and you're a stage performer and when people say, wow, this was amazing, great performance, that is what you thrive for. We thrive for that accolade, that we thrive for that applause from a customer or from somebody who, who loves your food. I mean, I mean, that's what we are. We, we need that accolade and the attention of being uh, welcomed, you know, by the, either it's by a palate or by just listening to us talk. So, you know, when, when I did Chopped and people said, oh, wow, that's a great comment, it, it felt good. And the reason why I, I'm looking at you and rather be talking to you this way rather than not have a screen in front of me is because when I say something to you, your face changes and I can see it. And that, that tells me, okay, am I going in the right direction or am I not going in the right direction? Same thing with the food as well. It's, they're all they're basically the same things, just a different medium or a different platform. Too good. My servers sometimes think I'm crazy because I talk about body language a lot. And I talk about love languages. Are you familiar with the concept? Yes, of course. I think it's such an important thing that the, the moment you realize what yours is and the moment you can figure out what someone else's is, you've learned more than any interview can do. And I think a lot of chefs and people in this industry that are good at it and that thrive in this industry are words of affirmation people. And I am very much a words of affirmation. Like I said, I would rather have someone say something negative than to be nonplussed or neutral or have no reaction at all. Correct. And I always tell people, I said, you don't like something, tell me right there and then. Don't go on social media 
and then tell me that you didn't like the salt or you didn't like the chili in it or you didn't like this and this. I'm man enough to accept it and you say, oh, your chicken was overcooked and I will be more than happy to change something about it. But if you go on social media and you say, I went to veggies and I didn't like the food as much and blah, blah, blah. Well, I can't do anything about it because you already left. So I always say, have the courage to tell the person, even you when you go out to eat somewhere and if something doesn't live up to your expectations, tell the chef or tell the person that, hey, listen, this didn't live up to my expectations. Because how is somebody going to change something once you've gone behind the computer and you've gone on social media? It's, it's wrong. And I find people. And now, if I don't do anything about it, then you have the right to go on social media. But the first thing to do is to tell the person, hey, listen, I was not treated well, or I, was, I didn't get the same love that I expected out of your dish. I agree entirely. I think a lot of consumers don't realize that it's difficult because there are, are, unfortunately, there are a lot of restaurants out there where the experience is very machined and very manufactured and there's not love and there's not an effort put into it. It's designed to make money probably for just one person or for a corporation. But I think it takes a lot of nerve and a lot of gall. And I think if you listen to you talking in a you've had to have a lot of nerve and a lot of gall like put up with the you know discrimination discrimination and racism that you were experiencing and then to come to canada and you know kind of kick down the door and say this is what i'm doing it takes so much nerve but then i find that that nerve is never reciprocated rarely is the nerve reciprocated from the guest to say hey it's not how i would like it can you please do this that also takes nerve it takes some gall. And when a chef, in my opinion, and certainly it sounds like you are of this ilk, like when a chef puts their heart and soul on a plate and they're doing so much thinking to coordinate the efforts to make sure that when you take a bite, you're in love with it. Like that's just so naked and exposing, you know, to, to have that. And so many things can go wrong. Oh man. I don't know. I'm venting myself a little bit. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's great. It's good to, good to hear that. Let's talk about goals very quickly and then we'll be done. It seems like you've done a lot. You've accomplished a lot of things. And I can tell that you have kind of thought a lot about yourself and you found yourself. And I feel through this conversation that you have a very solid core of who you are and what you've done and where you want to go. But, you know, what are some bucket list items that you would like to see? So what I want to see is that a human being eats Indian food one day of the week, pizza the other day, Korean food one day of the week, a hamburger the other day. I really truly believe that music and food and breaking bread together with another human being of a different culture builds tolerances towards each other, builds respect for each other. And what I would, my bucket list would be is that everybody eats different cuisine from different parts of the world once a week and breaks bread with different human beings all the time so that we can all be together and equal. And there's no hierarchy. There's no boxes of this is, this is the kind of food. Let, it should be just a cuisine. It doesn't have to be Italian. It doesn't have to be French. It doesn't have to be Indian. It can be just the passion of the chef and the food. And that's what I, my bucket list is. If I can change people's perception of saying, just eat really good, delicious food, listen to great music, and break bread with people from a different culture, 
I've done my job. That's my legacy. Wow, magical. So, Chef, you know, this industry has its ups and downs. It has all sorts of potential pitfalls. And ultimately, it's not often the easiest career course. But for someone who is listening to this podcast, how would you recommend they get into the business? Well, I would say to them, first of all, you must love people because this is a people's industry. You're going to have people from different walks of life, different moods. And so if you don't like people, get out of them. Second of all, I would say is if you're willing to sacrifice every Saturday, Sunday, every holiday, every time, and be prepared that you might be single for a long time because this is an industry that you know, takes a toll on you. And there is wrong things that happen in this industry. It's a, it's a, it's a tough, it's a, it's a drug basically. It's the high when you get that accolade from there. It's a drug, and then you don't have that energy to come back and give it to your partner or anything else. So if you're willing to lose all that, then you should definitely do this thing. And thirdly, I say you should travel. If you love to travel and go to different parts of the world then you will love it. Then because then that's what cuisines are supposed to be. Whether you go to Vietnam or Cambodia or anywhere else, you know, you go there and enjoy that. So I think it's very important for us to tell people that, hey, listen, this is not just a glamorous. You don't become a celebrity. So here's the thing that I always tell people. People say, oh, you're Vikram, you're a celebrity chef. And I say, no, I'm not. Because I'm just a chef. I want to be called a chef. Why? Because I went to school to become a chef. I went to school, people go to school to become a doctor, people go to school to become a barrister, or they go to school to become a dental hygienist. There is no school for celebrity. I'm not a celebrity. I'm Chef Vikram Ridge because that's what I've studied. So it's very important. Don't run after fame. Run after what your focus in life is. And once you have that focus in life, chances are you will be successful. Thank you for listening to Resto Talk, a podcast brought to you by Touch Bistro. I'm Justin Warner. Make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts, and we'll catch you on the next one.